Welcome to Season 2 of Ing Podcast, a production of Menno Media's Leader Magazine. What does it mean to authentically follow Jesus? Each week, Ing Podcast invites you to join us on a journey. Join us as we talk with people of faith who are creatively thinking, growing, and being. People who are reimagining and exploring what it means to enrich faith in a complex world. The grandeur of the tradition, if I, if I have captured it to any extent, is inviting. Um, and the grandeur of the field is inviting. There is a way of arguing in, in the tradition of ethics. There's some better ways and some worse ways. And I try to show some ways to have a good argument. And really, in ethics, it's, it's really one long argument. And so let's have, a, let's have a good one, right? Our conversation begins now. Join us as we journey together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of In Podcast. Today, I'm excited to sit and interview Dr. David P. Gushy, um, who's a professor of Christian ethics and the writer of Introducing Christian Ethics, which is a book that I think is already available for pre-sale, but it's coming out early this year. Welcome. Thank you for having me on on your podcast, the Ing Podcast. That's a fun name. I'm, I'm it is a fun name. <laughs> yeah. So um, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself so that our listeners can get to know you a little more? Sure. Um, I was born in Germany, raised in Northern Virginia, was raised Catholic, um, had a Southern Baptist conversion experience as a 16-year-old in the late 1970s, became a flaming born-again Southern Baptist Christian, um, and was going to save the world through evangelism. Gradually, I uh moderated and eventually i went to southern baptist seminary discovered the field of christian ethics there and uh have made a life out of teaching and writing christian ethics since my graduation from union seminary in new york in 1993 personally we live in atlanta and i work in macon and my joy of of teaching remains unabated i teach college students mainly some seminary students and i also have doctoral students that I teach through the Free University of Amsterdam in Europe. So it's a very rich life. That's wonderful. I'm curious, you said you, you know, found out about ethics. What what drew you to that? Maybe it's even some something that's worth defining for people, especially since your book is a about introducing it and making it maybe more approachable for the average everyday Christian. You know, so much has to do with who your teachers are. I had two great ethics professors in seminary, um, Paul Simmons, and then more uh, personally important for me was uh, Glenn Stassen, who, by the way, was the founder of Just Peacemaking Theory and a legend in peace church circles. So by the time I'd taken a couple classes in ethics, uh, I was in love with the discipline. I found that it, it brought together piety and real-world engagement, um, what Jesus had to do with war and economics and uh, family life and abortion. So once I once I discovered that, it was clear I needed to do that. So Christian ethics as a discipline goes back really to the beginning of the church. Every time Christians ask, what should we do? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does faithfulness look like? We're doing Christian ethics. The modern discipline of Christian ethics was born in the late 19th century in the U.S. and in Europe responding to the grave problems of that time of industrialization, urbanization, 
mass poverty, labor unrest, and um, the dramatic transformation of the social landscape. And so you first start seeing classes in Christian ethics in the late 19th century. I think the first one I've ever identified was like 1875. That expression of the discipline is sometimes called Christian social ethics. And that's really where I locate myself uh, as my own professional identity. Christian social ethics basically asks, how does Christian faith and Christian values and the teachings of Jesus apply to social problems, especially? But more broadly, ethics is a discipline that asks, what is right and what is wrong? What is good and what is bad? How should we live? What is just and what is unjust? What pleases God? And descriptively, how do Christians and other people historically answer these questions? And so we're uh, all the time examining the history of the church, thinking about the issues that people face today, and proposing, um, uh, you might say, strategies and standards for how Christians should live today. I love that um, point of intersection that you bring up, that it's about understanding our tradition, where we come from, how people have answered these questions of, yeah, what's right and wrong or what should we do, which feels very active and just relevant, but then also applying that in a way that's like, okay, what are, what are the issues that are coming up regularly for Christians today? Um, I think that that's feels very central to um, both how I understand my faith as an individual, but also as a pastor leading a corporate group of people, this feels extremely relevant. So um, yeah, I'm interested to hear more about why is this book valuable for today, for this time that we're currently in. To your last point, I can't think of a discipline that's more relevant. I mean, (laughs) every, every question pretty much that we deal with in ethics is acutely relevant. Um, just, I'll just thumb through, this may also help answer your second question, or, you know, I'll thumb through just the issues that this chapter, that this book deals with, okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, patriarchy, creation, forgiveness, race, economics, abortion, sex, marriage, church, state, crime in the criminal justice system, peace and war, end of life. And then I have the moral dimension of the ministerial vocation and why the last chapter is called why following Jesus is so hard. Mm -hmm. I also have some thematic chapters on grand themes in ethics, like the sacredness of life, justice, love, forgiveness, um, and truthfulness. So, I mean, I think that's bread and butter for, for the concerns that real people have. And in ethics, I think, can, can provide some guidance. In this moment, there's a lot of people who are skeptical about Christianity. Um, a lot of people who are leaving. I've written about ex-evangelicals who are leaving. And one of the things that concerns me is a lot of times the people that I am running into are more sure about what they don't believe than what they do believe. Mm. And the subtitle of this book is called Core Convictions for Christians Today. And I I do want to provide substantive help in thinking about what we should believe, not just what we find unbelievable. Yeah, I work with 
college students mostly, but I'm also housed in a congregation. And I do feel like the younger people that I talk to have this real emphasis on practicality of, of what it means to be a people of faith, right? Thinking about mission and how we are in the world. Um, around all of these topics that you brought up, you're not uh, (laughs) backing away from hard topics. That's for sure. With that list that you read off. And I think that young people are also thinking more and more about their system of ethics. You hear more and more about um, people only shopping, right? From people who, (laughs) from companies who pay their people living wages or, um, supporting local businesses or um, anti-racist corporations. I'm glad that this resource is going to be out in the world because it definitely feels like something that the future of the church um, needs to really hold central as we as we move forward. Just a little bit more backstory on, on why this book. I had an earlier introduction to Christian ethics that I wrote with Glenn Sasson. It's called yeah. Kingdom Ethics. And it's really well known. It's been used in classes all over the world for almost 20 years, I guess. But um, Glenn died in 2014. I updated Kingdom Ethics in 2016, but there were some new things I wanted to say, and I didn't feel like I could say in his name anymore. And uh, as I was as I was preparing to leave full time seminary teaching, I had one last ethics class, and I thought, you know. I think I want to write all new lectures for this last class so that I can give them my best shot at what I really think about all these things here at the mature stage of my career. I won't tell you how old I am, but let's just say <laughs> the mature stage of my career. <laughs> so so I decided to write all new lectures and and I talked talked it over with Front Edge and they said, you know, that might make a great book. Mm. So we decided to turn these last lectures into a book, and then we decided to make it multimedia. So part of the appeal of the book is it is, for one reasonable price, you can get audio book, video lectures of the whole content, ebook, and or print book. In other words, you can get it all. Like I'm looking at the print book, and there are uh, uh, QR codes. If you scan the QR code, you go right to the... Um, to the either the audio uh, or um, or the video lectures. So I, I intend it to be used accessibly, uh, hopefully like a gift to people who, who who have different challenges accessing education and to make it available. You can listen in your car, you can do a seminar about it, you can be in Kazakhstan reading, you know, like engaging it or however, however is most convenient for people. That is such a cool resource. I will admit I do not read a whole lot on Christian ethics regularly, but that sounds like a really unique resource. So I'm excited. Thank you for for this offering into the world. Well, I appreciate that. I'm excited about it too. I'm really eager to get people's response. My peers uh, gave me lovely endorsements of the book. And mm-hmm. I, I have a high... I guess I have a higher confidence than I even thought I would about that it's going to be useful. So I'm grateful, really grateful. Good. Today's episode is brought to you in part by two graduate programs at Eastern Mennonite University. The Center for Justice and Peacebuilding and Eastern Mennonite Seminary offer graduate degrees, certificates, and other professional development opportunities. 
Join us to expand your skills, challenge your mind, and feed your spirit. Eastern Mennonite Seminary is grounded in the Anabaptist values of community, service, sustainability, peacebuilding, and discipleship. We invite you to participate in God's movement and discern together how to lead communities to embody Christ in the world. At the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding, you will learn with people working towards a more just and less violent world. You will become adept at interrogating systems, understanding the causes of violence and injustice, and responding to them. Learn more about how we can be a part of your journey by visiting emu.edu slash ing. Another part of the the conversation I feel like people are often talking about is that we're in a time where people have kind of retreated into their ideological camps. They're in echo chambers. How might this book or this bigger conversation about Christian ethics help us in that space? That's a great question. Here's what I would say. Uh, The Christian moral tradition is 2,000 years old and then longer if you add, if you make the, the link to the Jewish tradition as I do in the book and as you must to do good Christian ethics, right? So in its origins, the Christian moral tradition is 4,000 or 3,000 years old, right? It's as old as the Hebrew Bible. It's as old as the oldest materials in the Hebrew Bible. And then when you think about the way that the Greek ethical tradition got woven into Christianity, it's as old as the as Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, right? And it is a tradition that has developed in many, many, many cultures all over the world, many different eras. It's a rich mosaic, a tradition, Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, brilliant scholars, church leaders, and regular people. Okay, so you look at all of that, and then you think about our puny, polarized, ideological camps at this particular moment in American life, circa 2022, where everything has got this left-right binary and mm-hmm. and people are divided into their, into their camps and can hardly even hear what others have to say. This is what is the anomaly. What we're living through now is the anomaly. Mm-hmm. I hope that what the book does is it kind of puts some context and some perspective and helps people rise above and beyond and transcend and think in different terms than the fixed left-right binary terms that we deal with every day. Mm -hmm. So like when you engage like the issue of say marriage in classic Christian ethical terms, nobody's going to be completely satisfied. The right wing, if you're going to, if you're going to do the left-right binary, the right wing is going to, is going to have some issues. The left wing is going to have some issues. The tradition speaks beyond those terms. So I think that a book like this or any serious intellectually rigorous, traditionally you know, engaged book like this helps us to get beyond the binaries and to find ourselves challenged wherever we find ourselves in our ideological camps. So you also have a book called Changing Our Mind, and I feel like that fits in with this conversation of people being stuck um, in a certain ideological framework we feel like we don't have permission to change our mind to jump ship or find ourselves even in the middle um can you share a little bit more about um the importance of being able to change your minds or or how that has been liberating for you 
Changing Our Mind is a book that I wrote in 2014 that was an exploration of the LGBTQ question, mainly from within conservative evangelicalism, asking uh, whether there was a way beyond the rejectionist position that has dominated conservative Christianity. And I really began that as an exploratory project. Um, I did not know what the outcome would be when I started writing it. I began it as a series of essays. As they piled up, I gradually realized that I was in the process of changing my mind from what I would call a soft traditionalism or rejectionism, you know, like gay people are cool and everything, but they just can't be married and their sex, their sexuality is not okay, to, to a full embrace. that, And that meant the belief that um, this aspect of Christian moral tradition needed to be reconsidered. Um, but I found that the tradition itself gave me the tools for, for doing the reconsideration, scripture mm -hmm. and tradition did, because I concluded that when you actually looked at the number of verses that spoke about, you know, same-sex activity, there were tiny, tiny number of them. They were disputable in terms of how they were interpreted. And they had a lot of culture laden in them and they've yeah. done a great, they've done a great deal of harm. Um, mm -hmm. But I did not find myself persuaded by a kind of a straight out liberal or libertarian view that, you know, something like, Hey, people should be free to do whatever they want. You know, sex is nobody else's business. You know, personal freedom is all that matters. I mean, that's a cultural attitude, but that's, that's not any part of the Christian tradition. It just isn't. So I found in the category of covenant, what I needed, and covenant is one of the ancient themes of, of Hebrew and Christian scripture and tradition, and the idea that adults, as they leave adolescence and move into the world and they feel drawn to partnership, they are best off, scripture and tradition teach, if they make a covenant with a partner suitable for them, and then they commit to that covenant for life and to, to the way of life that enables them to sustain that covenant. Mm -hmm. so, so that's that's a fairly traditional rendering. So it's not, hey, anything goes. It's people in who they actually are, not who we wish they might be in some theory. And that includes that some people are, are gay and some people are lesbian and some people are trans. And But as they are, they should be free and blessed by the church in making a covenant partnership with the partner suitable for them, which, by the way, is the best translation of Genesis 2, 15. I, I think that's the verse. I will make a partner suitable for him. Mm. And, and so what the tradition said was, if, well, what it essentially said, and what conservatives still say is, if you are gay or lesbian, there can be no partner suitable for you because you're too broken to have a legitimate partner. But what I say is, if we accept the reality of the diversity of humanity in its sexual um, sexual diversity, sexual orientation diversity, then we invite all people to the covenantal standard, which is rigorous but also gracious, because when we find that partner and commit to them and them to us, we find stability, love, um, and flourishing. So do you see how that, that revision of the conservative view still has plenty of conservative in it? It has tradition in it. It's just more expansive because it, is, it has allowed learning from real life and real people today 
Yeah. It does involve some rethinking of how the Bible is interpreted, but I'm not throwing out biblical ethics to come to that conclusion. It also feels maybe more honest. It feels like sometimes we'll make decisions that we think are holding true to a certain way of, of being, but there's like contradictions that come up when you look at it from different angles. Um, but the way that you've taken this issue, for example, and brought it bigger picture, um, feels like it's given it permission to be more like synchronous with the, the rest of your faithful understanding of tradition of scripture of, um, faith. Um, it's, It's interesting. Um, a term that I use, I'm seeing if I if I have it in a, in the in this book where I can describe it real fast. A term a term that I use about marital and sexual ethics is covenantal realism. So I'm glad you just you, that the word that came to mind for you. Yeah. Um, covenantal is the norm. Realism is also a norm in the sense that it is right to understand human beings in their actuality and to attempt to make gracious inclusion for all people in their actuality, right? So what what the tradition tries to do is to believe the unbelievable and then to impose that on people at great crushing cost. Yeah. And that's what has gone wrong on the LGBT side. It is unbelievable to believe that there is no such thing as, you know, same-sex orientation or that it's all just a satanic plot or or the people are just being willfully evil. That's not believable when you actually know real lives and real people. Um, yeah. By the way, I have I deal with that in the book in terms of how do we how do we source our ethics, and it's scripture and tradition, sure, but it's also reason and experience. And experience yeah. includes real lives, real people. It also includes what the clinicians tell us and the psychologists and the people who studied. Uh, the most closely, all human phenomenon that are relevant to whatever the subject is. The clinicians have been begging the churches for decades to to reconsider traditional teaching on the basis of real lives and real dignity and real suffering. And so this book is written kind of on the other side of, of me having made those moves. And it's kind of my synthesis statement of what that looks like in a variety of different areas, uh, including end of life and and marriage, and sex, and, you know, a bunch of areas. Yeah. I'm curious, um, as you think about Christian ethics, how denominations or certain types of traditions come into play? I think that's coming to mind where I think of, like, the fracturing that happens in different denominations or church traditions on these topics, right? Like that seems easier to be like, oh, well, I'm just going to like sit with the kids who think the same thing as me. But I'm wondering in your experience, if there is, I don't know, um, room or space or what does it look like to have um, different denominations or types of traditions play a role in the study of Christian ethics. I think I'm particularly curious from the perspective of this podcast being uh, associated with the Mennonite denomination and peace tradition. um, If there are, I don't know, more categorized areas of Christian ethics or how those pieces fit together. Yeah, that's a great question. One way to, I mean, if if somebody were to do a mental map 
you might think that Christian ethics essentially is kind of like historical theology in the sense that you've got versions of it, right? Mm-hmm. Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, and then think of all the Protestant groups, right? And then even just Baptists or Anabaptists, how many different versions there are, right? So, yeah. so that while there is a grand and to some extent shared tradition, there's also these different tributaries. And some of these tributaries are dead ends, brackish streams, you might call them. But most of them have something constructive to add. And and so one way to think about ethics is in terms of listening closely to the distinctive contributions of specific tributaries. And I think the Peace Church tradition is one of those. The radical focus on Jesus, on his earthly ministry, on his peace proclamation and peacemaking ministry and his blessing of the peacemakers, on his nonviolence, and the way that 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 left such a profound imprint on the early church that there's no evidence of any Christians participating or supporting violence until at least the late second century, 150 years after Jesus. Then that begins to become more uh, uh, convoluted and, and complex and contradictory, but but the peace tradition never dies, and it, and it always bears witness. Sometimes it is the only witness for nonviolence in our violent world, as, as a lot of other Christians just kind of give in to violence. So I, you know, in the book, I try to illustrate what different tributaries of the Christian tradition add to different issues. Um, and I have a whole chapter on, on peace and violence and war. That's one reason this discipline is endlessly interesting. You could be a specialist in Anabaptist ethics or um, Calvinist ethics or Jesuit ethics or, uh, you know, specific figures like uh, Luther or Reinhold Niebuhr or uh, somebody, right? So, um, so I'm trying to offer a 30,000 foot view synthesis while also inviting people to dive into the strands that they find most helpful for themselves. Yeah, that's super helpful uh, way to think about it. I always appreciate an ecological metaphor. So thank you for that. (laughs) Well, David, this um, resource seems like a wonderful thing for the church. And I'm wondering um, how it might bring hope to the future of the church or how, how, what do you think the hope for the future of the church and, and Christian tradition is? My uh, hope for this book is that it can transcend the binaries a little bit and be mm-hmm. read in very different kinds of countries, denominations, and audiences, and also different levels from high schools to, you know, uh, to all the way up the age brackets, right? So grandeur of the tradition, if I, if I have captured it to any extent, is inviting um, and the grandeur of the field is inviting. And so um, I also hope that the book uh, contributes to substantive conversations about important issues rather than just slogans and attacks. Mm. There is a way of arguing in, in the tradition of ethics. There's some better ways and some worse ways. And I try to show some ways to have a good argument. And really, in ethics, it's, it's really one long argument. And so let's have a let's have a good one, right? Let's have a good yeah. one. I think that a lot of cultural, you might call it cultural Christianity, is dying in America right now. Mm-hmm. Just kind of, hey, I went to church because mama and grandmama went. That's over, right? It just didn't happen. So I hope that those who keep going to church will want to be serious about their discipleship and about resourcing that discipleship. 
Um, Christianity is not the majority path anymore. And so maybe that means that just kind of vague cultural Christianity is fading and more serious, studied, thoughtful Christian faith is what will survive. And so I'd like to see this, this book be a part of that. I've loved having smart conversations with so many different people, churches, podcasts, schools. Um, there's a lot of smart Christians sloughed off a lot of unhelpful tradition, but they still want to follow Jesus. Um, I want my hope for the church is uh, we may not have as many Christians, but what we can hope for is serious discipleship. And any resource that helps people do that uh, is a good thing. And I hope this book is that. Well, it certainly sounds um, like it's going to be a good read. I can't wait to get my hands on it um, and talk about it with people in my congregation and my community. So thank you again um, for for this book. I'm saying thank you preemptively. I know it's going to be fantastic. And thank you for talking with me today. Thank you for having me on the Ing podcast. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I'm not, I'm now I get to tell everybody... Uh, that I've been on Ing, which is really Yes, cool. yes. So, I am curious, is there a way or a place that people can follow along with this project, other projects or things you might do in the future um, that you could share here? Yeah, the best starting point is davidpgushy.com. Okay, great. Wonderful. Well, thank you for talking with me. And again, thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Ing Podcast. Next week on Ing Podcast, as we look toward Black History Month, we sit down with Glenn Guyton, who is the executive director of Mennonite Church USA and also happens to be the first African-American to serve in this position. Even when I do diversity training, it all boils down to back to who are you? You know, who do you say you are? Uh, and then how do you get to that, that place? How do you live that out? You know, organizations have mission statements, vision statements, but is, is that really what you're living into are your actions aligned with with who you say you are. I think that's our biggest, biggest challenge. As always, we'd like to thank our guests and all who support Ing Podcast. Thank you for joining us on the journey. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review in your favorite podcasting app. And if you have something to share, send us a message at theing at menomedia.org or by leaving us a voicemail. King Podcast is hosted by Reverend Allison Moss and Reverend Dr. Dennis Edwards and produced by me, Ben Weidman. Views and opinions expressed on Ing Podcast are those of our hosts and guests and may not represent that of Leader Magazine or Menno Media. Ing Podcast is a production of Menno Media, a nonprofit publisher that creates thoughtful Anabaptist resources to enrich faith in a complex world. To find out more, visit us online at menomedia.org. Thank you.